Today's reading is from Daniel 6, 25 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and to fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. Uh, it is good to be with you today. Um, I want to start off just by telling you about something that happened to me <clears throat> around Christmas last year. I knew it was coming. I think it happens to all of us at one point throughout the year. It's like clockwork. Here it is. I had another birthday. <laughs> so when I um, woke up, you know, you, you have this feeling. I don't know if this happens to you. But I woke up, and the moment my eyes, almost right before my eyes pop open, I think the morning of my birthday, well, this is it. <laughs> this is what it feels like to be this old, right? You know, and, and, and then I start to think, you know, and my brain starts processing, now what? Now what? And I, I feel like as far back as I can remember, I've been one of those kids that have thought this every morning of my birthday. When I was a kid, I used to actually daydream for hours about what it would feel like to be 16. You know? <laughs> like I was like, man, when I'm 16 that morning, I'm just going to feel free. I'm going to feel, you know, because I'll have my own car. I can go where I want, do what I want, as long as it's before curfew. And, <clears throat> and then that morning, you, you wake up. You're 16, and you know I, I, got a, I figured out how to get a car, and then I realized that this freedom comes at a cost, right? I had to get a job to pay for car insurance, then to pay for gas, then to pay for the food, to go hang out with my friends and do all these wonderful activities before curfew. So then I thought, you know, well, maybe, maybe when I turn 22, then I'll feel like that moment. When I open my eyes in the morning, I'll feel like... I've arrived because in my mind, I, you know, I'm done with college. I've had my first adult job, and I'm really, you know, I've arrived at that point. Well, 22 comes, and then I realize, hey, I'm going to be a pastor. <laughs> so then I go for more schooling and go to seminary and get my master's. Then I get my first real adult job, and then kind of my whole 20s, I still have this, li this little angst as to when am I going to feel like I've arrived. Then, then I hit this milestone in my life. I hit the big 3-0, right? Ooh. Now, when, so for those of you who are younger, you're thinking, what are you talking about? You'll see. Those of you who are older, you're like, you haven't seen nothing yet, you know? And, and maybe you think I'm being a whiner here because, uh, you know, when I, when I thought about my 30s, you know, when you're 16 or 20, 22, there's like this glamour about turning those ages, and it's not as dignified as like being in your 40s. You start to get that pepper and salt and pepper in your hair, you know. People have to respect you. But in my, in my 30s, I'm like looking at myself in the mirror, and I hear my absolutely wonderful kids screaming bloody murder in the other room, and, and I think to myself, shouldn't things be easier by now? <laughs> Look, I wasn't, I don't think I was ever expecting things to be easy, you know, and I love a good challenge, if you know me, but I didn't think things were going to be this challenging. 
You know, I thought at this point in my life, there would be a, a little less distractions to carry out what I feel like God's called me to do, a little, a little less questions. You know, I thought I'd have more answers now, and maybe I do have more answers, but I have even more questions, and I thought for sure there'd be less hardship, less, I know this sounds ridiculous, but less stress, and I thought for sure I'd have more time, right? Because you always say, oh, well, I'll have time to do that later. You never have more time, and, and, and that's, that's just not the way life works. I remember someone who is older and much wiser than me told me, you know, the best lives lived are those lived on an incline. The best lives lived are on an increasing scale of difficulty. And I think I'm starting to get that. The older you get, sure, you have more capacity as an individual. Maybe you've honed some of your skills. You can get more done in a particular time frame, but you have more responsibility. Things can feel heavier, and now you have more to fear because you know more, maybe. It's the curse of knowledge. Maybe you have more to lose because you accumulated more wealth, more possessions, what have you. With that comes more fatigue. And with all of that, then also comes even more temptations to just throw in the towel, to give up. And, uh, and we've just known, I don't know about you, but I've just known so many people who just don't end their lives well. And, and we've all got our lists, don't we? And we hope and pray we don't end up on that list. Friends, family, pastors, leaders who stopped short and so whenever I find a story of someone who ends well, like one of my first questions I ask myself is, how did they do it? Because <laughs> I see the race before me. And I know how weak I am. And I know that this life is on an incline. And when we go through the different transitions in life, we're all asking ourselves, how, how do I do this? How do I finish well? Well, if anyone knew that life was on an incline, it was Daniel. Right? Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at his life from his account in the book of Daniel. And just to recap, I mean, we saw that this guy was taken from his home as a teenager. He became a slave of a really brutal king. He was stripped of his identity and expected to embrace a worldview that was hostile to everything he believed. And even though he encountered oppression, persecution, and even the threat of death time and again, this guy, as we just heard from our passage read at the end of chapter 6, ends on top. And so today, these aren't Daniel's last words in his book, but we come to the last story that we hear about Daniel. We come to the end of his life. And next week, we're going to see some of these visions that God gave Daniel in the midst of exile as he's serving these really brutal kings and seeking the good of Babylon. But today, we look at the end of his life. And where does it end him, you know, but in a cave with a bunch of lions? Now, okay, here's the deal. A lot of us have heard this story. So let me just, and, and many of us grew up with this thing called flannel graph. So chances are that was your first experience with a cave and lions. Maybe some of you heard some really weird vegetables explain this story. There's all these different kinds of explanations. As, and some of you are like, what are you talking about? You don't want to know. Um, but today we're going to uncover, we're going to uncover Daniel's answer to this perennial question. A question that arises when everything is good. And like when everything that you hoped would happen is actually happening in your life. It's the same question that arises when nothing is going as planned. It's a question that I think haunts us all, is how do I finish well? 
And no matter whether you feel like you're at the beginning of the race, you're in the middle of the race, or the finish line looks like it's right across the street. Daniel understands something I think we so often miss. And if, if we think we don't need to hear from him this morning, we've got another thing coming. He's got such a key aspect for each and every one of us that if we miss this, chances are good we won't finish well. So to see what that is, why don't you open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6 with me this morning. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 743. And right off the bat, we see that there's this new ruler with a new regime. There's geopolitical transition. And who runs the empire? That sounds interesting. Daniel's career, he's seen this rotating door of emperors. Nebuchadnezzar came and went. Belshazzar came and went even quicker. <laughs> and then Babylon itself has come and gone. In 539 BC, Cyrus took the capital of Babylon, and just like that, the Persian Empire becomes the dominating empire. And this is where Darius the Mede comes in that we see at the beginning of Daniel chapter 6. Now, to be clear, we don't know a whole lot about this guy named Darius, okay? He's not mentioned in the literature of the ancient Near East that we currently have access to, but like we saw last week, um, uninformed scholars said that about Belshazzar until we discovered a tablet in the 19th century, until we realized that actually the biblical narrative here in Daniel is historically reliable. So even though we may not have the artifacts at this moment, that doesn't mean the story is made up. So in the meantime, some of the best guesses as to who this Darius guy is, is that Darius is just another name for Cyrus, or he may be governor um, over Babylon to Cyrus. So he's kind of like the assistant to the regional manager. He's uh, our, uh... Either way, Darius is the new boss, and he's a lot like the old boss. And the reality is, is that Daniel is still Daniel. I mean, you start reading through the beginning of chapter 6, and again, Daniel rises in the ranks. Darius, he not only makes Daniel one of these top three officials over Babylon, but because Daniel's so outstanding in his work, the text says that Darius notices this spirit of excellence. He's so trustworthy. He's protecting Darius from theft and any other loss that Darius is in the process of promoting him to be the chief high official over the other two high officials. Isn't that interesting? Daniel, who's probably somewhere in his 70s or 80s, and he's about to be made the second most powerful man under Darius. He doesn't slow down for the work of the common good of Babylon, or does he? He doesn't slow down in his trust of God over this city. So when Daniel thinks about finishing well, it's not a vision of a beach in Florida and earning some shuffleboard trophies. No, it's working hard to the end. And Darius, he sees this, sees this Daniel's integrity, but he's different. There's something about him. But news gets out about Daniel's promotion, and, and for anybody who's in a workplace environment, you know that when a new promotion opportunity is made public, the temperature in the room changes, and slowly the competition begins to rise. Well, suddenly some of the other high officials, they want to take Daniel down, and they, they go on digging, looking for some dirt. I mean, surely someone in public office, as long as Daniel, has something that he's hiding, right? That's the only way you get up there is by paying off somebody when you've made a mistake so that you can keep your image clean. And surely, this is his story. And, and the reason they think this is reasonable, because chances are this is their story. And so they go digging. But what do we see in verse 4? Look at me here in verse 4, chapter 6. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because, why? He was faithful 
and no error or fault was found in him. You see, Daniel wasn't like them. He hasn't sacrificed his character to gain power and prestige. Actually, if we see anything about Daniel's life, it's his character that's absolutely crucial to why he is where he is. But they're not commit, content to you know, admit defeat at this point. They just change their tactics, right? If they can't get him on vice, they're going to go after his virtue. So let's look at verse 5. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And here they think they found Daniel's weakness. Aha. So they come up with this plan and they go to the king, Darius, saying in verse 6, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, interesting, the prefects, and the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be remote. Now, you can imagine why this law is really appealing to Darius. He's the new guy on the block. A lot of people don't even are having trouble remembering his name, potentially, at this point. And so maybe he's wondering, how do I get people to remember that I'm the new guy in charge? So when his top officials come to, this, come to him with this idea, an idea that he thinks Daniel's behind, because they said all the presiding officials are be behind, he thinks to himself, why not? And basically they come up and say, hey, why not do this? Just 30 days. Just 30 days. Not forever. Make a decree that anyone who prays to any god or man for that matter, they're going to have to say, say your name, say your name. You didn't know it was back there, but that's where it was. And no matter where they are, no matter what it is, they have to say your name, Darius. It'll be on the lips of everybody, and everybody will know you're in charge. Now, of course, not everyone's going to actually think they're praying to Darius when they feel like they have to say his name. But the point will get across. Darius's fame will grow. And he will become more well-known, and it will strengthen his position as ruler in Babylon, in the city. And this, what's always, this is what always gets me. I mean, Daniel, he hears about this law after the king's made it official. We don't know whether he overheard somebody talking about it. Maybe he heard about it for the first time when it's made or decreed and proclaimed across the city. We don't know if one of the guys who was seeking to undercut Daniel came up and told him with a smirk on his face as a sign of victory. And listen, if I were Daniel at this time, you know what I'd be thinking? I would be thinking, okay, God, it's not that important, right? Like, you, you're not going to care if just for like 30 days, you know, I just pray to this guy, Darius, you know my heart. You know my heart. Or maybe, maybe, maybe I'll just pray in private. I won't say anything out loud. God, you've got me here positioned for strategic influence. This is my role to actually bring about good in the kingdom. You can't actually expect me to sacrifice all of that. That wouldn't be your plan, would it? I could come up with really good justifications. But what does Daniel do? Look with me at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so he knows, this isn't ignorance, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Knowing his enemies are watching, knowing his life is at risk, he does what he's always done anyway. You see that his windows are open. Like at least he could have shut his windows. 
But no, they're just open before everyone. There's no hiding it. It's almost blatant, and he gets down on his knees, as he's always done, three times a day, and prays not to Darius, but to God. And to be clear, Scripture doesn't command that we need to pray three times a day. It shows up in one of the Psalms that we pray evening, morning, and lunch. One psalmist does, and nowhere is there a command to pray towards Jerusalem with his windows open, but he does so, remembering the promises of old. But this is how Daniel had chosen to spend his time for over 50 years, probably 65 years, getting down on his knees three times a day, facing Jerusalem and praying to his God. And the high officials, they had to have felt like a sense of accomplishment at this point, like a pride, like, see, we, we are really smart. We've got him. Like, this is it. And look at how they go to Darius. They know Darius loves Daniel. And, and this is just to kind of recap this, this narrative for us. They basically go to him and say, you made a decree that no one was allowed to pray but to you for 30 days, right? Yeah. And you said that if they pray to anyone other than you, then they should be thrown into the lion's den, right? Yeah. And in Persian law, you can't revoke this law now that it's been decreed, right? Okay, guys, you were there. I get it. Well, there's this guy named Daniel that you know all too well, and he's been praying three times a day, and he makes no mention of you. And suddenly King Darius sees what happened. He thought he was in control, but in reality, he was nothing more than a pawn. And he realizes that signing the law was actually signing Daniel's death warrant. But maybe there's hope. You know, in verse 14, we see that, that Darius, he worked until sunset to figure out some way that he could get Daniel out of this mess. If he could just get control of the situation, if he could just figure it out. I mean, he's, he's the king in Babylon, for goodness sakes. He's got all power. And he tried to think through every scenario until finally the time was up and J Darius, he's forced to put Daniel in the cave with the lions. But before he does, before he seals the door, he cries out to Daniel and he says, may your God whom you serve continually protect you. What do you think about this? Dar Darius, he's this pagan king and yet he believes that somehow Daniel's God can save him. And this thought, it leaves Darius restless. He, it says he doesn't sleep at all that night. He, he, he fasts from everything. And in the morning, at the first sight of sunrise, he goes running to the, to, the, to the cave, making these obscene noises of worry and anxiety. And he gets there, and they move the stone away as quick as they can, and he shouts down, and he says, Are you still alive? Has your God been able to rescue you, Daniel? And maybe there's this moment of silence. And everybody thinks Darius is an absolute idiot for even checking. And to the surprise of everyone, Daniel cries back in verse 21, O king, live forever! My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they've not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And when Daniel's being pulled out, you could just imagine Darius is celebrating, everyone's celebrating, except for one group. I mean, could you imagine being Daniel's accusers at this moment? Like, how can you plan for that? I mean, they thought they had everything under control. They had the perfect plan. Almost. Now, you need to understand in the ancient world, this is really important as we come to the end of this story, if a punishment like being thrown in the lion's den was issued, okay, it would be considered a trial by ordeal, meaning 
If you were killed, then clearly the gods were confirming your guilt in the crime. But if you happened to survive, then it was a way of saying the gods proclaimed you to be innocent. And if the gods declared you innocent, the ones who accused you of evil, they now must serve the fate that they had accused you of. Why do I say this? Because Darius, he gathers all of Daniel's accusers, their wives and their children, and he throws them in the cave. And the text says, instantly the lions pounce on them, crush their bones and eat them. Now, Daniel's not trying to say, like, this is what we're supposed to do. He's quote, I mean, he's, he's telling history. This is what a dictator does. He not only kills those who are in opposition to his kingdom, but he also kills the children because he doesn't want that child to grow up and, you know, seek out some revenge. So Darius, remember, he's this pagan king. He puts the accusers to death, then he does the absolute unthinkable, and it brings us back to the end of the passage that was read for us this morning. Throughout the whole Persian empire, he sends out this decree that praises not Daniel, not ultimately, but rather Daniel's God, because he gets it. There's something different about the God that Daniel worships that's made Daniel a different kind of person. And what about this virtuous Daniel? He ends his life serving yet another king and yet another regime faithfully and fruitfully. You know, you come to this story and, and it ends with, with Daniel finishing well. Kind of against all odds. And, and this, is, this should ask, you know, it should cause us to pause and ask the question, what does it look like now for me in the midst of transitions in my life and in culture what does it look like for me to press on and finish well? And I think Daniel believes down in his bones something so crucial that's so key for us to finish well. And I don't want you to miss this. Here it is. Prayer is better than control. Prayer is better than control. I mean, there are three kinds of people we see in this text, aren't there? There's Darius, who's a lot like Nebuchadnezzar, a lot like... Belshazzar, they're the ones who have all power and they think they have control. But time and again, those who seem to have all the control are actually pawns in a bigger narrative of which they are not control. You see Daniel's accusers who don't have control and are striving and chasing and pursuing control. And when they think they've got it, they realize it's got them. And both of them, you find one who has what appears to be all control and finds himself wanting. The one who has no control and is chasing after control and finds themselves wanting, but then you find Daniel, who doesn't scrape for control, but pursues prayer and finds himself on top. Prayer is better than control. Now, I think that sounds really pious, <laughs> and I think down in our heart of hearts we want to believe that and think that prayer is better than control, but I think more often than not, we really believe that control is better than prayer by how we try to fight for control and take control at any, for any reason, and we come with our justifications. Do you remember playing uh, the game, Would You Rather, as a kid? You know, it goes something like this, would you rather eat a cockroach or a cat? Ew, neither. <laughs> not an option. You must choose, right? Um, well, imagine being asked, would you rather be eaten by lions or fill in the blank? 
What would you need to put in that blank for you to choose to be eaten by lions? Would prayer make the list? And I get it, you know. It doesn't seem like it would make the list. I think for most of us, you know, if prayer got banned for 30 days, I mean, how many of us would actually see a difference? How many of us would feel relieved? Oh, man, that's been a bit of a chore anyway. I mean, how many of us at least would just change our schedule so that no one knew? Not that anyone does. Because prayer, here's the deal. It can feel ineffective. It can feel inefficient. Or at the very least, in our walk with God, we often treat it as optional. When the kids are screaming in the other room, when there's laundry that needs to get done, when there's a project at work that just consistently demands our time, when there's a boss breathing down your neck, when there's objectives to meet in an organization as a leader, when, when you have to get your bills paid, man, who has time to sit around and pray? It's hard to choose prayer over really good things like Twitter and Facebook and, you know, Netflix binging, right? Let alone being thrown to lions, I mean... And yet Daniel believed prayer is better than control. I mean, really what Twitter and Facebook so often is, more than anything else, is image control, isn't it? Making sure you're liking the right posts, making sure you're posting the right posts so that people see you in a certain way. You can control your image. And suddenly you find yourself on Facebook and for, for 45 minutes. And, you know, I've been there. I'm like, man, what, where did the time go? I've been looking at 60 videos about cats, you know? Those don't show up on my Facebook. I have my own self-image control. Um, but listen, prayer is better than control. And yet, where do we communicate what is better? It's with our use of time. Our use of time. And what do we see with Daniel? When you have one king who feels like he's in utter control and another people who are scrapping for control, Daniel doesn't try to manipulate his environment. He doesn't try to change his environment. What does he do? He does what he's always done. And he finds himself investing his time three times a day for over 65 years on his knees, praying to Jerusalem, trusting the God that's in control. But why? I mean, why does Daniel think that this is worthwhile? Why is prayer better than control? And here's why I think. There are many reasons, but here's one. Prayer forms us into courageous people in a hostile world. Prayer has this formational aspect. It actually makes us into a kind of person. I mean, how many times have we gone through these stories in Daniel and we come to the one with the lion's den and we think, would I actually have the courage to do what Daniel did? And it can feel like it's out of reach. Like maybe I would never do that. I don't think I could do that. If I put myself in the would you rather, I don't think I would choose the lions. And I think it's a misunderstanding of where courage comes from. Courage doesn't come by this whim out of nowhere. But it's formed on our knees in prayer time and time again over our whole lives lived. You, you, listen, listen. Courage isn't found in a moment. It's formed over a lifetime. And if we miss that, we're going to always raise our hands in the air and say, what happened? You see, when the pressure's on, when virtue's only option is accompanied with suffering and it beckons us to forego comfort, what you choose at that moment gives you a glimpse into the kind of person you are. You see, if you fail to have courage at a critical moment, it's not a momentary lapse in who you really are. 
Instead, it's a momentary window into who you actually are. And if we forego prayer, we will never become courageous people in a hostile world. I mean, this is why Darius has confidence to shout down at Daniel. Because he's seen the kind of person he is over time. May your God, whom you serve continually, protect you. Why? Because Daniel was some sort of ancient Mr. Miyagi? No. Okay. You know, he's 70 or 80 years old. He's going to take out those lions? No. Darius sees that Daniel's different, sees that he's got this excellent ethic, that he's a person of integrity, and that somehow the God that he prays to, that he will not negotiate in and, and stopping to pray to, has made him into this kind of person. And if a God can make Daniel that kind of person, he can save him from the lions. And that's how God works in prayer, you see. He makes us different in prayer. And here's how. I think this is one aspect in which God makes us these courageous people. Is prayer is where we stop everything we do in the world to remember who holds the world. And it's not us. Prayer is where we stop everything we do in the world to remember who holds the world. And that's not us. Do we have responsibilities? Yes. As followers of Jesus, do we have civic duty to be good citizens? Yes, of course. But prayer is one of those raw moments in life where we pause to remember that our confidence isn't in controlling and manipulating our circumstances, but it's in submission before the God who holds our circumstances in his hands. And you know what this means? I was thinking about this. If prayer really does form us, that's one of the avenues in which God works through to form us into courageous people in a hostile world. A lack of prayer in our lives deforms us and deforms us into a people of cowardice. I mean, think about this. Darius, once again, the guy who should have had everything under control and yet was used as a pawn, he has all this overarching anxiety. He has all these unforeseen consequences for his actions that are hurting the people he loved and he's causing all this pain because he thought he was in control and he leaned into his own control don't be fooled prayer is better than control so how did daniel finish well he chose prayer over control his whole life long don't even expect this to happen overnight you know eugene peterson brilliantly said that that the christian life is basically a long obedience in the same direction and being on our knees over years will form us into people who reflect Jesus. Entering into the yoke of Christ is where we learn to live the life we were designed to live, a life that is dependent and understanding and resting in God's control. But Daniel's enemies, they don't get that, do they? They think that prayer is Daniel's greatest weakness, when in reality it's his greatest strength. And that can be true of each of us this morning. And honestly, I think we need to understand that afresh today in light of this past week more than ever. You know, after we had Razor's Leadership Pathway in here on Wednesday, I was driving home over here in the Longfellow neighborhood downtown, and I got stopped by uh, a rally of people. Actually, they all looked like me, all 20-somethings, all looked like me. And uh, it was the, the Never Trump crowd. Okay, and profanity and violence 
It was, it was, it made me so uncomfortable. And not to say that uncomfort is a bad thing, but it was so violent, the language that was used, that the pain that was communicated. And then I see also on Facebook, and I see on Twitter, and I talk to many of my brothers and sisters of color who said, hey, no matter who wins the election, I'm not leaving my house for the next six months. Because those who feel like they have control, a lot like Darius, are going to exercise that control against me. And those who feel like they've been disempowered are going to now exercise that control again, or try to, and I'm going to be the victim either way. You see, the answer's not control. And we have so many people who are either saying, I finally have control, and they're abusing others, or people who say, I don't have any control, and they're abusing others. That's not the answer. Prayer is better than control because that's the place we recognize once again that we're not in control and we're created and formed and recreated into courageous people. So many people are asking, how are we going to make it out of this? It's not by shouting at each other. It's not through violence. But honestly, I think more of us just need to get on our knees. So how do, how do we get started, right? How do we get on our knees, or how do we get better at getting on our knees? I just want to give you four quick next steps, okay? Because I'm a pastor, and that's just what I do. But here we go. Uh, four next steps. First, I want you to acknowledge how hard it is. Prayer's hard, okay? Don't go into prayer always expecting this ecstatic experience. Every time. Just make time. And acknowledge that it's hard sometimes. Acknowledge that sometimes you feel like you're talking to yourself. I get it. It's not about just the feeling. It's about the discipline and how God works through that and forms us over the long haul. Secondly, find a good rut and fight for it. Find a good rut and fight for it. For me, it's the first thing in the morning with a cup of coffee and in conjunction with reading scripture. Listening and allowing that listening to inform my praying. And, and hear, hear me out. A lot of things are going to fight to now break back into that space. You may start for a week or two weeks and then suddenly, you know, you find your work creeping back in, or you find, you know, you need to check email then, or you need to sleep in. Make decisions the night before if the morning is the time for you to pray. Fight for that rut. It's over the long haul. And then thirdly, make it about more than a checkbox. Make it about more than a checkbox. This isn't a way to make God like you any more or less. Jesus has already taken care of all of that. You are loved unconditionally, but what this is is about forming you into the kind of person who will finish well, and following Jesus in his yoke. And then fourthly, trust the one who listens. Trust the one who listens. I mean, God is really listening. He listens to Daniel. We see that time and again. God's always listening. And just because he doesn't answer according to our timetable and prayer is not a place where we dictate our plans to God, it doesn't mean he's not listening. Instead, he's forming us into something better than safe people. He's forming us into people who are courageous, and often that means pointing us into suffering and into the cave where there are lions. So acknowledge how hard it is. Find a good rut and fight for it. Make it about more than a checkbox and trust the one who listens. And can you, can, listen, if you can, can you imagine a church that really believes that, that prayer is better than control? A church that when hostility comes from coworkers or neighbors for allowing our faith in Jesus Christ to not just inform our Sunday or the minority of our lives, but the majority of our lives within our work and our leisure, 
We would, have, we would be the kind of people who come with courage in choosing suffering over comfort. Can you imagine a church such that when leaders change, when cultures change, the hands of power change, whatever change comes, we lean not into our own understanding and control of our circumstances, but instead place our confidence in God and his goodness and his timing. Can you imagine a church that not only embraces the unconditional forgiveness of Jesus Christ on the cross, but also his practice of daily praying, even for the church and for the world? Can you imagine? Well, may what we think astounding by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit be true of each and every one of us this morning, one prayer at a time. Let's do that now, okay? Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. May that prayer resound through every fiber every aspect of our schedules and our imaginations. Amen. Amen.